You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In our current divisive political moment, much of the broader secular world uses the word evangelical as a shortcut to encompass a number of other identifiers. If you're called an evangelical, you're most likely white, you're probably at least middle class, uh, you might be a Republican voter, and you're definitely someone with a belief in traditional gender roles and what it means to be masculine and what it means to be feminine in the world. My discussion today is with someone working to inject some nuance into the discussion regarding what it means to be an evangelical in her new film, Baptizing Feminism. I'm pleased to be able to talk to executive producer and director of that film today, Kathy Barbini. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Kathy. Thank you, Victoria. I'm happy to be here. So, as uh, as one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist podcast, uh, I'm someone who has a lot of feelings about the intersection of Christianity and feminism. What motivated you to make a film about that intersection? Great question, because filmmakers usually come from a personal perspective, no matter what they say. It's an interesting story. I'll try to shorten it a little bit. Um, I was brought up Catholic until I was 10, and I was a very holy little girl. Um, But I didn't know Jesus. I knew Mary. (laughs) And I felt sort of, um, I think I felt touched by the the sacred space that the visual of the Catholic Church mass and some of the... um, I don't know, the traditions brought me into kind of a more sacred space of seeing the world. Um, I didn't know anything really about theology. (laughs) Uh, We didn't study the Bible and so on in the Catholic faith, as I recall. Um, And then my parents left the church when I was 10. And for 40 years, I basically wandered in the desert of, um, uh, of the world seeking, but in different traditions and spiritualities and new age and so on. Um, but I also was brought up, um, yeah, I was a young girl. I was born in 1957. Um, so I was really born into the beginning um, of the the seeds of the feminist movement. So I saw my mother, go, I always laugh because I saw her going from Easter bonnets to suddenly go-go boots and miniskirts. So, and, and from leaving the church, um, you know, somewhere in there around t- nine or 10, it was all very confusing because I didn't really have a faith, um, you know, at that point or a church to go to anymore. So I was very much catapulted into this new world of my mother's uh, feminism <laughs> and uh, no church. And it took 40 years or something. And I had a major dream about Jesus that led me into an evangelical church. I had never knew. Wow. That yeah, I never knew what that was. Um, never read the Bible, started doing Bible study. It was a, a conservative church, but not fundamental. It was kind of uh, sort of in between. I didn't know anything about gender roles or anything at that point. I was just studying the Bible and very enlivened by it and, and engaged in, in learning about the Bible for the first time. And then I went to a couple other churches and landed in one that seemed dynamic. It was evangelical. I think it was a Calvary um, church. And I, I was sitting in the pew one day, and it was after probably about a year. I, I was very bothered during that year by some of the masculine tones in the church, the football references. I remember the pastor once said that, you know, men shouldn't be alone with a woman. And, you know, things like that used to really irk me, but I let them go. But the, it was The good old Billy Graham rule. The Billy, right, and P- Mike Pence, right? Oh, yeah, he's a, an adherent to it. We did an episode of the CFP about that a little while ago. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's a big that's a big one, especially being in the, the year 2019 and you're still thinking, wow, this is going on. But anyway, um, there was elders on the stage. They were all men. And I turned to the associate pastor, who's kind of this surfer dude looking guy. And I said, why are there no women? And uh, he pulled out his Bible to 1 Timothy 
to 12, <laughs> pointed his finger to that scripture. And I was shocked beyond belief that this was, you know, really uh, indicating, according to him, that women are supposed to be silent in the church, etc. So that was when I left the church and I started frantically researching on the internet and found Christian feminists and uh, people that were ranting about 1 Timothy 2.12 and women not allowed to speak in the church. And this started planting seeds for the film and uh, it wouldn't go away. That's usually when I know I have to work on a film. It, it kept coming back and I was just obsessed with researching and, uh, and that's how the, the film was born. Wow, I uh, I expected a personal experience answer, but I didn't quite expect that. That's a great story. Yeah, yeah. And there was another part of the story that was interesting. The dream with Jesus was so fascinating because he invited me to visit, you know, to 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 follow him, and that's when I started visiting churches because I wondered what he meant. But before I he left the dream. It was very real. I, I, I have a lot of very visual dreams, maybe because I'm a visual person. Um, before I left the dream, I, he, I looked at the, the 12 disciples that were in this desert with him in this dream. It was the first century. And I said, you want me to follow you, but there's no women here. <laughs> Just like I said to the, the pastor sitting next to me. And he said, well, um, that's okay. You could be my 13th disciple. And I woke up. So it was a very big dream that made me question, what does that mean? Follow you, 13th disciple. Wow. Yeah, it was really powerful. And I thought about the 13th disciple thing. I think there's, I sense there's a call, you know, in, in the world to women, you know, rising in the church. So I think that there was reference to that in that that in, in him saying thirteenth disciple, but I also I, I also see the media and filmmaking as a thirteenth disciple in a way. Um, so I followed the call also, um, you know, with that in mind that you know maybe this is a voice to explore this this big issue that um, you know seems to be rising in in the Christian world. Uh, that's really interesting. I think um, especially documentary film is, is really having a moment right now. Um, there are lots of, particularly in, in terms of gender issues, um, documentaries like uh, Surviving R. Kelly or uh, Leaving Neverland that are really about sexual power and, and how those kinds of things work are exploding all over the place. Um, and when I started doing research for this interview, I was really pleased to see that um, actually you've worked on one of my favorite documentaries, a documentary I used to use um, all the time when I taught sociology classes, uh, The Healing Years, about the trauma of sexual abuse. Do you see common threads uh, in that film's discussion of gendered power and this one? Well, that's such a great question. Wow. That was my first film, The Healing Years. And it's funny because we did another film after about male survivors of child sexual abuse. And somehow we fell into this whole sexual abuse film issue because it was such a need. And we spoke to the healing and the voice, giving women and men a voice that were sexually abused. And we tried to, to get away from this topic because, you know, I'm a filmmaker and I wanted to broaden my horizon. So we did, we chose to work on baptizing feminism, thinking we would get away from uh, the subject of child sexual abuse for a while. We just needed a break from it as artists and filmmakers. Um, and then we circled around, of course, back to it because in the film we really do address the, the abuse issues in the church and, um, and so on. Uh, that's really, I think, a, an epidemic in the evangelical church. So we're, we're back to really, you know, looking at that question is, um, you know, our early film, it, it, I, I think that you know, anywhere where women are not given a, a voice, um, that, you know, there is going to be some abuse of power, whether it's sexual abuse or silencing and domestic violence and uh, just the op basic oppression of women. So, 
it, you know, it's all very interrelated. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, I'm still processing the immensity of that, that question because, you know, it seems like in this dialogue around abuse, the abuse of women, the abuses in the evangelical church, that people seem to be skipping over this elephant in the room, which I think is the, the dark, dark sides of patriarchy and, you know, even the complementarian, um, you know, um, movement that gets distorted, um, you know, when you have men and women that are broken, um, that even when complementarianism, ha they, the complementarians say there's, you know, the need to, uh, you know, be Christ-like in, in relationships with a wife, for instance, and by, you know, that, that, that men are supposed to treat women as, as Christ and, um, it's, you have to be a pretty perfect person to do that. And, um, so I don't know, I'm probably going off on tangents with your question, but it's all related. Yes. If, if that, if that gets to the heart of what you're asking. Uh, yes, I, I think it does. Uh, and now seems like a good time to segue into my question about complementarianism, uh, since you, since you brought up that word. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners to this show um, are familiar with that term, just in case you're not. The complementarian ideology, as opposed to the egalitarian gender ideology, um, theologically says that when God created men and women, he created them equally, but to occupy um, different roles. That, uh, that men and women were ordained um, just as loved and wonderfully created by God, but that uh, they're not supposed to occupy the same sort of roles um, some people say in the church and home and some people say in broader society. So that's what complementarian theology is. Uh, my question for you about that is a number of the posts on the film's Facebook page um, indict complementarian theology, um, typically is espoused by kind of the big complementarian pastors, people like John Piper, John MacArthur, um, Matt Chandler makes a number of appearances, um, and all three of these pastors, uh, as far as I know, are proponents of what I've heard referred to as broad complementarianism. The idea that women should defer to male headship, um, that's a phrase that comes up a lot, in all areas of life, in politics, uh, in schools. Um, Piper, for example, objects to um, female Sunday school teachers teaching boys above a certain age. Um, in addition to uh, the headship model in the church and the home. Uh, and I've heard something called either mere complementarianism or narrow complementarianism say um, that the headship idea is just about the church and the home and not about the wider world. Um, like in, in that, uh, in the narrow complementarian view, um, it's fine for a woman to, to lead a company, to be president, um, but not to lead certain denominations. So does the film deal at all with those multiple types of complementarian theology or just the broadest definition? Um, yeah, we, well, it, like Christianity and like feminism, there's many shades, right? Um, and complementarianism, we address that question in the film, are there, you know, shades of complementarianism? And we do address the soft, um, medium, hard, I think one of the feminists talk about, you know, that there are different um, variations of it. And we, we do, we will address that in the film, how much we'll get into that. Um, you know, we, we the, the biggest struggle is this topic is so vast, you know, there's the Bible passages that go along with it, the shades of complementarianism, the shades of, you know, Christianity, the shades of uh, feminism and all of that. But we, we, we want to at least give the viewers a chance to understand 
the, um, you know, the different expressions of it. And of course we can't cover everything, but we can at least present that there are different shades of it. And we, and, but, um, you know, we will be having some of the focus on some of the leaders in the comp that started the, the architects of, because they, you know, are, are very influential in, in our society and um, in our in our culture and in the church. So I think it's important for for viewers to understand how this started, who's behind, you know, this movement. Who's you know what I'm saying? Who started it? The Wayne Grudems, the John Pipers, Mark Driscolls. Who's planting the churches? Who's you know, writing the books, who's doing the mega media and, you know, how is this, you know, we're kind of trying to show the, the seeds of it, kind of how it started and who started it and kind of how that's playing out. And I guess as a sub mention or a sub look, we, you know, hope to, um, you know, show the different, uh, ways that people express that, and we can't get into every shade of it, but we can mention it or give viewers a chance to um, to understand that it's not just hardcore complementarianism that is expressed in the church. And we're still working that out and how that can be done. I mean, I think one of the, the challenges that we're having, and maybe you're going to be asking these questions, but... Um, is the film is a really coming from a Christian pers feminist perspective. It's baptizing feminism. It's about Christian feminism, you know, um, and really the reason why there's Christian feminism is kind of sort of the sub theme of currently that, you know, this um, need for women to, uh, you know, different points of view on the, the, the scripture, the handful of scriptures that um, that Christian feminists are challenging, and the broader picture of the um, other side of the debate, you know, which is the leaders of the this movement and complementarians who practice complementarianism. So hopefully, through the Christian feminist stories, we'll you know hear their points of view, and we hope to also features some of the um, the voices of the complementarians, both the leaders and, you know, some complementarian uh, churchgoers. And we're still working on that piece and how that will be done. So, you know, we, we hope it doesn't just have one perspective that this is just about Christ the Christian feminist point of view. I think it's important to present that there's, you know, um, people who are really passionate about complementarianism, soft, hard, and medium forms of it. I hope that answers your question. Yes, it does. I'm, I'm interested to see, uh, to see how that comes out. It's a challenge because any, we've, we've contacted some of the leaders of the complementarian movement, not, not a lot of them at this point, because we're so focused right now on just kind of narrowing down the Christian feminist interviews and footage that we've shot. And that's that will help sort of set, give us an outline of what we really need to address to give the other side a point of view. But we, we do, um, we will definitely have, we have access to news footage and uh, some interviews. Uh, there's an interview with Owen Stratcham that we, we're going to be using, a radio interview uh, with Rachel Hilda Evans and him. And he's one of the leaders of the complementarian movement. So we will have their voices and we're trying to get rights to some of the uh, videos of leaders of the complementarian movement. And of course, we will try to contact them to see if they'll go on camera, but that's really questionable who will and who won't. <laughs> I mean, sure. baptizing feminism, that's not going to be easy, but there's other ways that we're going to get their, have their voices heard in there so the audience can really try to determine, you know, that point of view. Okay, great. That, uh, that sounds good. I'm glad you're going to be incorporating multiple perspectives. Um, you mentioned in that answer, uh, Wayne Grudem, the head of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And I think 
there is an argument to be made, um, and I, I suspect uh, the, the film gets at it, that what we know now as sort of the most popular face of complementarianism is in fact a response to uh, the 60s and 70s second wave feminism that you mentioned um, with that anecdote about your mother. Um, when When Grudem puts the council together, he talks about that feminism infiltrating the church and how um, how it needs to be fought against. So um, because of, of that connection, I thought it was really great that you um, work to highlight Christian feminists, not just um, current ones, but Christian feminists who are working in the second wave in the 70s and 80s um, into a discussion of, of people who are currently working in the movement. I think there are a lot of really oppositional myths and broad stereotypes um, about feminism that start to get attached to the second wave. So I think it's great that you're, um, you're making that a, a little more nuanced by showing that Christian feminists even existed then um, and, and were, uh, were working um, in the movement. Can you talk about why it was important to put that kind of historical trajectory in the film? Sure, um, absolutely. Well, I think there's a misconception. Um, maybe part of it is true that feminism leaked into the church from secular feminism, but a lot of people don't realize that the, you know, women like Sojourner Truth back, you know, back then were Christian women that um, really in influenced the secular feminist movement. You know, there was the first wave, and people don't realize that these were Christian women that were uh, setting into motion some radical social change, voices for women. I mean, the... Um, uh, Surgeon is Truth, um, Ain't I a Woman is a, a great example of her, or, you know, a, a Christian feminist voice back then. Um, I don't know if she would have called herself a feminist, but if you read Ain't I a Women, Woman, I can't think of a better word than Christian feminist. So it, to me, it was, and we mentioned the, the first wave of Christian feminism, um, for lack of a better word, but women, Christian women that were paving the way for women's voices. Um, so I think, it, it, you know, for us as filmmakers and in investigating this and presenting it, it would not be true to history to say that secular feminism was infiltrating the church. It was evangelical. It was maybe some Feminist, secular feminism was influencing the church, but evangel um, evangelicals back in the 70s that we interviewed, like Letha um, Dawson Scanzoni, she's one of the uh, veteran Christian feminists back in the 70s. Um, she, you know, was a a, a strong um, evangelical, and there was evangelical back then didn't mean what it means now for a, a lot. There was a lot of evangelicals that were very involved in social issues and movements and uh, some feminism and you know really it's different than it than what we what we understand evangelical means today um, so I think you know we wanted to put into perspective what a lot of people don't know about history and there was Letha you might might fall into the more progressive Christian feminists but there were also the early leaders that, you know, maybe were starting the Christians for Biblical Equality, you know, they, when they, they split off at one point because of, and we don't get so much into that, but they split off because maybe some were more conservative and some were more progressive. So the idea of even evangelical feminists back then being liberal, you know, pro-choice, that kind of thing, there was also at the same time, evangelical feminists that Grudem, you know, Grudem was talking about evangelical feminists were getting into the church too. But there were there were two there were different different shades of um, of evangelical feminists, conservative, progressive, liberal. I mean, they were across the board. So I think, you know, we're trying to dispel this this kind of 
were this horrible um, representation, this horrible idea of what what people think feminism is and Christian feminism is, and trying to just put um, voices to that. So uh, you know, and the and and to really put into perspective the history of that um, during that time in the 70s and before that with the first wave of feminism. So I think that Wayne Grudem, you know, I think that there was a, a real movement happening back in the 70s with evangelical feminists that were real Christ lovers. They weren't secular. Um, a lot of them were responding to the first wave Christian uh, women like Sojourner Truth and others. So you know, we we really feel like um, to to dispel what the complementarians sort of were saying about that and stereotyping who they were, uh, we wanted to give voice to to women that actually lived that. So we interviewed Letha and, and a couple of other women during from that '70s period, which is very exciting. They have a really interesting perspective. Uh, but it was mushrooming back then, and then the complementarian movement started, and in, in partially in response to that. Right. I think um, I think it's really easy to not realize how young um, sort of the public face of complementarianism is um, if if you don't know ab about that kind of reaction, that kind of social reaction. Yeah, you're right. It is in that sense, absolutely. But they've made a, a they've made headway, <laughs> big time. Uh, so, you mentioned, and I, I want to come back to Sojourner Truth. Um, you mentioned her, and something I was really struck by on the film's um, website, the about page. There are two quotations in these uh, two gold blocks at the top. Um, one from John Piper asserting that uh, the church's masculinity is ordained by God, and the other from Sojourner Truth asserting that uh, Christ came from God and a woman and man had nothing to do with it. Exactly. <laughs> and I was, I was really struck by that uh, juxtaposition. Um, I, I understand uh, it's gendered implications, and I, I get the, the Christian feminism um, at the core of it, but I was still pretty surprised by it um, because of the ways in which evangelical spiritualities, even evangelical feminism, I think is guilty of um, excluding the experiences of black women, at least in our current um, historical moment. Can you talk about the decision to include those two quotes next to each other? That's a great question, um, and I, I, I love your impression. Thank you for that. Well, I, I think, ain't I a woman reading that um, a while back? I was so moved by her words, and they just rung, they they struck me, you know, just in a very deep place. And I, I wasn't seeing her as black or a black woman. I. I I didn't have that impression when I read her words um, until I thought about it, of course, and just how even more powerful she was because she was a black woman and she was doing not only the work of, um, you know, abolitionist work, but she was also speaking for women and black women and all women. Um, so I, I, it wasn't a, you know, it, I think it was more just her words that really moved me to, to put, put uh, that on the website and just the message that she she gave through that. Um, but, you know, you had a bigger question, I think, behind that, that within that question. Can you repeat it? Sure. Um, so I, I was moved by that juxtaposition, um, not just because of its gendered message, but because I think um, evangelical spirituality and even um, evangelical feminism um, sometimes excludes the experiences of black women. So um, maybe a, a better frame for the question is, um, can you tell me a little bit more about um, the different kinds of women you interviewed for the film? Um, are there women of color uh, who identify as evangelical feminists in the film? 
It's a great question. And um, I'll tell you, yes, there are. And we have, uh, it's a, if you look at my film, The Healing Years, uh, which was done back, you know, gosh, and I don't even remember when I finished it in 2000s. Um, you know, I always had diversity in my films, um, maybe because I've lived in cities and that's normal for me to be around a diversity of people. And this film, though, was different because I started out, when I started having the planting the seeds for the film, I was going to do a more personal film about my own story. And as I got into the deeper research, I realized I didn't really want to do my own story, you know, my own story, but sort of branching it out into the wider story. But I realized I didn't really want to tell that story. I wanted to tell the, the, the story not from a personal perspective. I, I just It just no longer worked for me. And that convicted me in a lot of ways because, you know, as I was researching, I, I, I knew the problem with the evangelical um, Christian world being mostly white women. And the truth is I've grown the, the evangelical churches I've gone to when I started going to churches after this dream I had were pretty much all white because I was living in more white, you know, white areas. And, um, but as I brought into out, you know, I, it, it really struck me how white it was and how white I felt. And here I am a white filmmaker and I still struggle with this. And I'm really, um, I have a lot of uh, women of color who, you know, I feel are my teachers uh, through reading their blogs and being part of their, you know, websites. And I'm just indebted to, to them. And so I, you know, in answer to your question, I, wouldn't have just interviewed white women, but then I was posed up against the question of, well, isn't feminism in general white? And wasn't the Christian feminist movement in the early 70s mostly white? And the answer is pretty much, yeah, from what I can tell. Right. It's something we're still, we're still dealing with, I think, how, how to, um, how to more actively listen, um, and, and make, uh, think of of things not just about gender but but intersectionally exactly and i think that is so important and that the exciting thing for for about that is that there is some movement i think um there is more of a dialogue as much as it's still a struggle you know there is still dialogue so the the women of color i have in the film you know it's like they t- they tell me what their experience is and what and I have consult you know women of color consultants and the, the, to me any of the blogs I read and and so on that that they you know really inform me um, they 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 I'm being educated I'm just sort of trying to tell the 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 bigger story as best I can but. Uh, but I'm still struggling with it because, um, you know, then you get into, and I, in fact, I, it's on my, it's on my mind very much to have some real conversations with, with some of the women of color leaders to help me to shape this, um, get involved with me in shaping that part of it. And even how much do, you know, how much is baptizing feminism going, you know, how fair is it to call black women Christian feminists when many of them are womanists? Right. Yeah, exactly. It's a very complicated and, and for good reasons, complicated, you know, so I'm, I'm honestly, as a filmmaker, I'm really struggling with that. And, and I, I just trust in the process and that I will find the right, um, people to help guide with that. And I hope to have more women of color, you know, on my team um, when we have some more funding to kind of maybe even be a co, you know, a, like a associate producer or producer helping or re- researcher or whatever to help, you know, help in that part. But we're still, we're just still struggling with how to present that. But the women that we did interview in the film, 
do call themselves Christian feminists. So we're, you know, we're, we're happy that they can tell their story and their point of view and what it's, what the experience is as a black woman, Christian feminist. There's one woman that doesn't call herself a Christian feminist. She's, she's actually an, one of the experts that we interviewed. She's, she is definitely a womanist and she explains why and what that means. But I, I don't think this film could be about womanism because I am not the person to tell that story by any shape right. or means because I am not, uh, you know, I'm a, a white woman. So um, I guess we're still just struggling what, how to approach the womanist feminist thing. And then the last part of it is, you know, when I did the, the, the video, the uh, cover on the... Um, the website, you know, that was when I was coming from my own perspective, uh, when I wanted to make the film from a white, me as a white woman, you know, my own personal journey as a Christian fem into Christian feminism. So we really still want to change our, um, our, our cover to incorporate, you know, the, the, the many diverse voices that we have in the film. We have Indi Indian women and uh, that meet, um, in a cafe and we have, um, a, you know, um, Asian and, and women, uh, black women and ha Hispanic women, we still are, are wanting to interview and, and include in the film. So, you know, it, we, we just feel that, um, you know, right now we're still in a growing stage of how this is going to develop, how this needs to develop in, in a, re you know, in a respecting manner that, I don't know the answer, but I, you know, I, I want to express what's happening right now in that world. There's tension. We can't deny that. We talk about it in the film. The black, uh, some of the black women, uh, feminist, Christian feminists, talk about that. Um, so, you know, where I, I just want them to tell the story their way, and I just kind of just listen to what needs to be done in order to shape it. So. That's that's where we're at. I, I appreciate your uh, your honesty about that. Uh, the the difficulty of, of making sure um, the the right stories are are told in the right way by the right people. I know that that must be um, difficult as a filmmaker to figure out how that should go in an honest way. Yeah, and let me tell you, it's a prayer for me because I am limited, you know, I, I don't know, I, I, it's, I'm not, in a way, I'm really not the person to tell that story, um, but I want that story to be told through the, the women of color as best as possible. And um, anyway, like I say, it's a prayer and it, it's, it's, it, I'm wrestling with it constantly, like I am several other things, you know, telling the complementarian side of the story, because I'm sure there's wonderful complementarian people that, you know, we don't want to demonize it because, you know, you know, there's good parts of it, I'm sure. And people, obviously, half the country, I think, in churches, um, practice complementarianism. So, you know, at least I, I like to, to present, um, you know, the different voices and let the audience as much as possible, you know, wrestle with that. But coming from the perspective that this is a film about Christian feminism. So I don't want to ask you to give away who all your interviewees are, um, since the film isn't out yet, but I, I did want to speak to um, one more particular person that you interviewed who I'm a big fan of, um, Beth Allison Barr, who's a women's historian out of Baylor. Uh, I've been a, a follower of, of hers for several years. Um, she's one of my favorite posters on the Anxious Bench uh, blog, and I was really, really moved by, uh, she did a, a series recently there on um, interpretations of the Pauline letters and ways they have been she argues, misinterpreted in order to enforce patriarchal norms in churches. Uh, how important is the idea of a feminist biblical hermeneutic to the film? Well, between Beth Allison Barr, um, Mimi Haddad, who we interviewed, um, Letha um, uh, Dawson Scanzoni, and um, there's other scholars and you know that we're, we'll be interviewing it's it's very 
Oh, Junia Project, Kate Wallace Nutley. Um, I love know, the Junia Project. Big yeah, fan. We, they all have such in, really the gems that they share about the um, the Bible and the scriptures. What what Mimi calls the what does she call them? The uh, te- texts of terror. <laughs> so real, really, they challenge those texts of terrors in very uh, profound ways that certainly will allow viewers to get a totally different view of not only these texts and these scriptures that deal with gender roles in women, but the women in the Bible, bringing them alive. You know, they they do that beautifully in the interviews. And uh, it just, to me, just interviewing these wonderful women, scholars, just brilliant um, historians and Christian feminists, egalitarians, it's 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 a chance to really see Christianity in a whole new light and uh, in ways that we haven't heard for the most part in our culture, in our churches, in sermons, um, in books, and so on and so forth. So it, it it's a very very integral part. I think it's like a core of of the film because the the one of the uh, antagonists in a sense is the 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 patriarchal um, uh, lens of these Bible scriptures you know so we we have to kind of wrestle with that in the film you know it's really um, how do you how do you reframe what we've grown up to believe is you know this patriarchal view of the Bible and Christianity. And so these these women do that beautifully. Of course, we can't get so deep into the interpretations of these script these certain scriptures because it's so complex and there's many different points of view and so on. But we 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 give a general sense of what um, the debate is and the feminist point of view as opposed to the complementarian or patriarchal point of view uh, on the. The, the handful of scriptures. That's what we really try to focus on. And then the overview of the Bible through a more uh, feminist lens. That, that's throughout the film, right now in our, in our vision of it. Um, so you've mentioned several uh, people you interviewed and their viewpoints. Is there a particular piece of information that you came across during the filming process that you didn't expect or something that um, really stands out as surprising to you? Mm, that's, a, that's a very good question too. Um, let me think here. Well, a couple of things stand out, not specific things, but a general how feisty these women are <laughs> they're feisty they have a they have a passion for this they have a a message that they feel so strongly about that um you know sort of rises above any kind of oppression and just how fun loving and um it just they have a lot of chutzpah you know a lot of a lot of just fire and that was kind of unexpected. I, I didn't, I didn't really. It just it kind of surprised me. I, I'd say in a in a in a good way, a really good way, because I think in order to challenge patriarchy and these other male, you know, hierarchy types of ways of thinking, women, you know, have to really stand in that power of. Of confidence in in in, in their passions. So, uh, in that way, they're leaders, and I see that. Um, so there's a lot of light in it, in you know, just kind of shining a, just a new perspective on on Christianity and and the way it's been seen. So that and Letha Dawson Scanzoni said something at the end of the interview that that I never. It's not leaving me. She was like, oh, my gosh, I, I don't want to die. I just don't want to die. I have so much work to do. <laughs> it's, 
So that that really touched me. Um, you know, she's been working. She's 80. I think she was turning 83 or 84 that week, and um, it really it really touched me of how she's been working on this this since the 60s and 70s, and and still going strong, editing books and you know writing articles and that sort of thing. So um, just it impressed me how the hard work of, of, of these women like Beth and Mimi and uh, all of them, Kate and the passion. Um, yeah, pretty neat. That's great. Sounds, uh, sounds wonderful. So we've alluded in our conversation that the film uh, hasn't been completed yet. Can you tell our listeners um, maybe when we can expect to be able to see it? Oh, I get so like nervous by that question. <laughs> you, you can you can give us yep. like a season or an approximate. Yeah. yeah. So let me explain a little bit. Um, we are independent filmmakers, which means we uh, work. We're working under the International Documentary Association, which is a wonderful organization that supports independent filmmakers. But independent means we raise all our own money. We you know do everything without financial support of any broadcaster or uh, any larger organization that funds us. So we do all our own fundraising. We've actually uh, done a, a lot of work without getting funding just to get this piece of it done. So I just want to explain that it's a process in that way. And, and because we do that because we like to do what we want with it. Although if it gets to a point where Netflix wants to, to buy it, we don't know, then we'd have to face that decision. Do we give it, basically, basically you're giving it up to them. Uh, it's no longer yours when they, when they own it, when they buy it from you. Uh, but um, our, our past is that we own it independent because we raised all our money. We, we funded it. We did everything all on our own. We own it and we can do whatever we want. And part of what we love to do, and it's a big part of our work is doing the advocacy um, going, taking it around, you know, the world really to raise uh, awareness and um, have, you know, screenings and panel discussions and so on and so forth. So that's a hope. But in answer to your question, we, um, it, we're in the, I'd say three quarters of the way of filming. So that means we have about a quarter left of filming. And we're in the middle of um, narrowing down, getting everything transcribed. We just spent uh, two months traveling around the country filming. And now we're, we're transcribing everything and sitting down to kind of cut together a, uh, a preview piece. And while we do that, we'll determine what else we need to film. And then once we fil do that rest of the filming, we're trying to raise money in between to do the full editing. So let's say we raise all the money we need for editing uh, and we film, finish filming by the summer, then it would be right towards the end of the, the year uh, is our hope. And if it's harder to raise the money because editing is very expensive, it'll be soon after hopefully the year. So that's kind of how it works. Unfortunately, we can't get it done like in a snap. We'd love to. Once we get this clip done, though, it's it's always easier with our films that once you get a clip done, funders are more eager to give um, give to it to to get us moving for really quickly forward. That's been our experience. So uh, it usually takes about four to six months to edit a film like this. So you have to take that into consideration. But a lot. The truth is, we're trying to edit a lot of it with before we shoot the rest of it, of what we need. So we're trying to move this forward as fast as we can. That's, that's the best I could say. And believe me, I wish it, we could get it done like within the next two months. Cause that's what I would love. Okay. Well, we'll, um, we'll be looking forward to, uh, you moving along further in the process. Thank you. Yes. Cheer us on. But we, we also are, you know, a part of, we're filmmakers, but we're really, we're really activists, activist filmmakers. So the film is part of what we do. A, a big part of what we're doing is 
the raising awareness. So that's how we like to keep this in perspective in terms of the timing of the documentary. So we feel like it, it, they go hand in hand, our, our, our posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, for instance. It's all part of getting the dialogue going and raising awareness and challenging you know, people to think differently about the Christian world, the evangelical world. So it's, it's, the film is a piece of that. It's a piece of the project. Okay, thank you for that uh, thorough explanation. I feel like I understand the film process much more now. Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know, I, I guess it's sort of like writing a book, but you have the technical part and the fundraising part that, you know, I think a lot of us independent filmmakers, I, I know some people it's taken seven years to finish a film. So, uh, there's a woman that just finished a film last year on the Equal Rights Amendment. It took her seven years to make. So, you know, that's not abnormal. I hate to say it because it's too bad that the funding isn't more readily available for independent filmmaking, but that's just the reality of it. But it also gives us a chance to really do in-depth kind of, of filmmaking because a lot of people we know that do things for Netflix and TV and so on, they're a, little, they're a lot more shallow. Um, they don't have that research that we, we spent years researching, you know, so uh, it's a different beast. <laughs> Okay, uh, here at Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to let our guests have the last word. So can you leave our listeners with um, texts or resources you were exposed to during the making of this film that you'd recommend or just anything, um, anything you would like to be the last thing that they hear? Well, first of all, I, I'm very inspired by people who engage with us on social media and having the opportunity to talk to you. It, it really is inspiring to, to know people are really interested. So thank you, uh, followers and, and women and men that uh, are engaging in this conversation. It means, you know, just it means a lot to us. Um, so I want to say that. And as far as resources, we you know, just we post a lot of articles on our Facebook page and on Twitter that is really runs the gamut of, of Christian feminist speaking and some of the complementarian points of view. So I would say just follow us and you'll find other resources that way. And I'll be sure to link to uh, some of the film's social media pages uh, in the show notes for this episode. Thank you, Victoria. It's been a pleasure. Christian Humanist Profiles is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our publishing liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Britt Stack.